You're listening to a special episode of the Offscript Podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm one of your hosts. In last week's podcast, we told you about a book called Tragedy in the Commons, Former MPs Speak Out on Canada's Failing Democracy. It was written by Michael McMillan and Alison Lote, co-founders of Samara and two of the voices you heard on last week's podcast. Their book and the research they did partly inspired this podcast, and we wanted to share some of what sparked our interest in interviewing former MLAs. In this episode, we're sharing the tape from a keynote Michael gave when he was in Halifax two years ago for the Springtide Better Politics Awards, a celebration of people who inspire us to step into and not out of the political process. Michael talked about a few different things, but we're going to cut to his speech right at the point where he begins to talk about the findings from his book. We are trying to get at what is the role of the parliamentarian? What is the role of the individual member of parliament? We thought about that because we saw members of parliament as being fundamentally at the nexus of our political life. They are the juncture between individual citizens who vote and parties who are in government and then a government who actually governs. And we thought, why not tear a page from the private sector where when a senior executive leaves, you interview her or him and you often find out really interesting stuff. So um, we went about that and we conducted what we understand to be the first ever systematic series of exit interviews with the class of 06 and 08. My uh, Samara co-founder, Alison Lote, and I traveled across the country interviewing these former uh, MPs. We were not asking them questions about policy. We weren't saying, do you want taxes up or down or more of this or less of that? We were talking about what is the role of a parliamentarian? What is the most useful thing that that person can do? What is, what, what is that life like? What are your suggestions for improvement? So it was about the MP's role, not about are taxes too high or too low. We did 80 of these interviews. We did them at their homes, usually in their home, the living room or a local cafe. A couple of hours, on record, everything was tape recorded and transcribed so they knew that it was being uh, quoted. And they were totally reflective of the country. 80 of them. And what really surprised us, and I'll get into the meat in a, in a moment, is that we figured that the Liberals were going to talk in this way and the Tories were going to talk in that way, the NDP in a different way, and the Bloc in, you know, you know, by, by, by party affiliation, basically. And they didn't. While there were disagreements, while there were outlying points of view here and there, of course there were, there was overwhelming consensus on all the things that all the main things that they told us, regardless of party affiliation, regardless of gender, regardless of geography, regardless of age, we were shocked how consistent the message was. And more shocking than that, we were amazed to discover that they insisted on talking about things that we didn't even ask about. So we'd separated the interviews. Allison did half, and I did half, and. Uh, uh, after about maybe a dozen interviews, we got back and compared notes. And I said, the weirdest thing is, they're talking about this over here, which wasn't on our agenda. And she said, I get, I'm getting the same thing. So um, that was really interesting. We also, I should point out right away, took what the former MPs told us with some substantial grains of salt. We didn't necessarily believe 100% everything they were telling us. But we approached it as documentarians. And we found that this repeated narrative that they so clearly and obviously wanted us to hear, whether it was entirely accurate or not, hardly mattered, because that was the message that they wanted us to get inside our thick skulls. 
And that's what forms the real essence of our book, Tragedy in the Commons, and my remarks over the next 10 minutes or so. So who were these folks? All the parties in the Commons, they exactly reflected the Commons and the country. 16 women, 64 men. 35 cabinet ministers, 45 backbenchers. They all uh, served, they served an average of 10 and a half years in the Commons. And on average, they came to Ottawa at age 49, after 25 or more years in some other occupation. They had varied backgrounds. 12% had been lawyers. The largest cohort is what I call the caring professions. Doctors, nurses, uh, high school teachers, daycare workers, that kind of thing. But there was no one trend, and they reflected the country. Names that you'd recognize, Chuck Strahl, Jay Hill, Monty Solberg, Paul Martin, Anne McClelland, Ed Broadbent, Alexa McDonough, Andy Scott, uh, uh, Claudette Bradshaw, and so on. So we began the interviews by asking them a really easy, fluffy question just to sort of soften them up and know that we weren't evil creatures. How did you get into politics? How did you become interested in public life? And immediately, from the first few minutes, emerged the two main themes that ran through the entire set of interviews. Before I get into those two themes, just a couple of quick observations. The first is, there's no doubt in our minds that these are a snapshot, a moment in time. They were done from the uh, leaving class of 06 and 08, and then after we published reports and Random House asked us to turn it into a book, we did a few more interviews of, with a few from the class of 2011. But it was basically a moment in time. And if one did exit interviews in five years from now or 20 years ago, it might well tell a different story. We don't know. And the other thing is, again, we are asking about their role as an MP, not about the specifics of Im immigration or, you know, uh, tax policy. Also, and they talked to us about many topics. We learned about the role of committees. We learned about dealing with constituents. We learned about impact on the family. Lots of, lots of topics. But, and they all spoke with great pride about the sense of awe and responsibility that they felt in serving their country. We asked them at the end of each interview, would you like your kids, if you have kids, to go into politics or become a public servant? And almost all of them said, yes, if it were appropriate, I would be delighted if one of my kids were able to be a public servant in one way or another. And they had a sense of accomplishment in what they did. Having said all that, and you can tell by the title of the book, Tragedy in the Commons, that it wasn't all charming, there were a couple of dominant themes. The first thing is almost all of them, not all, but almost all, styled themselves as the reluctant politician. They claimed that they had never the slightest intention or idea of running for office, that they'd been dragged kicking and screaming against their will to run. They told us stories of a neighbor knocking on the door, will you run, no go away, knocking again, no go away, all sorts of stories about they were involved in the search committee to find a candidate and nobody would and then they were dragooned into running over and over again. I never intended to run, I didn't want to run, etc., etc. They also said that one of the reasons they didn't want to run, never occurred to them, is that they were an outsider. They weren't part of either the community or the country, and as an outsider, it wouldn't make sense for them to be in politics. They described themselves as an outsider in many different ways. One of them said, 
I'm the first woman of Greek descent to sit in the commons. Don Boudria said, I'm the only guy here whose first time, first job here in, in Ottawa was washing dishes in the parliamentary cafeteria, sort of upstairs, downstairs, outsider. Uh, many of the um, reformers, uh, for sure, style themselves as outsiders, as in the West wants in. They're outside, Maureen Catterall, you know, I'm, what's the daughter of a lousy Italian uh, a tailor, immigrant tailor, uh, not Italian, immigrant tailor uh, doing uh, in the House of Commons. All sorts of versions of this. The joke was, almost all of them had been highly, highly involved in their community for many, many years, very active citizens, senior leadership roles within the community, and yet they styled themselves as outsiders. In the frontispiece of the book, we have a quote from a well-known parliamentarian who says, you know, it wasn't really until middle age where it first occurred to me to run for office. And then I got asked to run at that point. And that was a quote from Paul Martin. And I was interviewing Paul. I said, Paul, you, have you been reading our notes from the other you know, interviews? I find it hard to imagine that really it never did occur to you until you're 50 years old uh, to run for office. But he was saying what Allison and I came to describe as a creation myth. You know, most religions have a creation myth. You know, uh, Christianity, Adam and Eve. Uh, Judeo-Christian, Adam and Eve. You know, it's not that we believe necessarily that there was an Adam and an Eve and, a, you know, the apple and the whole thing. But clearly, uh, these creation myths or origin myths for a religion or society bear real meaning. And we concluded that for parliamentarians, uh, it was best for that myth to be the outsider dragged uh, into it. Oddly enough, and worse still, throughout these 80 interviews, almost all of them claimed that they were not a regular politician. They were an anti-politician. They weren't like their colleagues across the aisle or in their own caucus. They said, I did politics and I went to Ottawa to do politics differently. I'm not really a politician. Quite frankly, we found it pretty bloody disturbing that even in hindsight, apparently, one can't admit ambitious ambition to public leadership in this country. They're saying this, we conclude, because they know full well in what bad odor we hold many politicians. But you know, when Coke competes with Pepsi, they don't say soft drinks will rot your teeth, drink our stuff, not theirs. Or when McDonald's competes with Wendy's, they don't say you know, ditto about fast food. So how surprised are we how turned off many citizens are when our own public leaders spend so much time dissing the category of political leader, public leader, or parliamentarian. I like to say when I'm discussing this topic in recent months that if I'm ever on the gurney having open heart surgery, I'm going to kind of want to think that the heart surgeon wanted to be a heart surgeon and isn't saying, I didn't want to be here, I got drag kicking and screaming, I'm not like the rest of them. You know, it's time to reclaim the idea that politics and public leadership matters. And if that can't be done first and foremost by our own public leaders, we've got a pretty big problem. The second thing, <laughs> the second theme that ran through these 80 on-the-record interviews was a remarkably strong concern and distaste for how their own political party operated. Not the other party, 
their own party, and specifically, they expressed concern about how the leadership of their own party operated. And to be clear, they were not talking, and they rarely cited the, you know, the individual leader of their party. They weren't saying that. It was a gray, sort of amorphous group of people who were a few feet closer to the center of power than they were, either people more senior in caucus or the leader or unelected uh, party uh, officials. But uh, they talked about their political career being determined and dominated by the party and not by themselves, and often not in good ways. In the vast majority of the interviews, they told us about a terrible, toxic nomination process. They used words, these are all on record, all quoted, they used words like toxic, black box, confusing, and fraudulent. This is the winner speaking. They then went on to discuss arriving in Ottawa, and they lamented the complete lack of orientation. I don't mean orientation, where's the washroom and how to fill out your expense chit. I mean, how do, how do things operate here? How do we draft legislation? How, we dis, how do we discuss in caucus? That kind of stuff. And they told us tales of how when they sought uh, help from their own caucus colleagues, they'd often be given poisoned advice so as not to get ahead within their caucus. They complained bitterly about whipped votes. And the bitterest complaints came from members of the Reform Party, who then ended up being conservative members. Um, Very, very strong uh, concern about what they called the choke chain uh, around their necks. They complained about decisions from the center, this amorphous center, about policy decisions, and specifically about promotions to committee or critic roles, or being hauled off uh, such a role if they were out of favor uh, with uh, the leader or the people at the center. They complained about what they called forced bad behavior in the commons in general and in question, at question period specifically. They talked about politics and their career as if it was something that happened to them as if they weren't there. They talked in a remarkably passive voice, as if they were the object and not the subject of the sentence. It seemed so weird. These were 80 accomplished people who had actually been community leaders, who had a successful career in something else, who went to Ottawa with the greatest of intentions, and they did accomplish things, of course. And when, when they got there, they lost their capacity for individual agency and ceded that to the party, and they resented it. So we asked ourselves, of course, well, if, it was, if you felt that way, if you didn't like it, why are you only telling us now, and why did you not do something about it when you were there? A number of them, in response, including Jay Hill, uh, said they just need to get a backbone. It's time for MPs to get a backbone and, and just don't take those toxic speaking points or you know, vote how you honestly believe. I think it's a bit more complex than that. We conclude in the book that it's a series of various factors. Some are psychological, some are social, some are political and practical, and they're all interwoven together. But we do have the view, based on these interviews, that one of the most important factors is the role in the structure of the political party federally in Canada. You all know that the party is not in our Constitution. You all know that it's evolved over time. 
and its role and structure has evolved where now it's one of the most centralized power structures of any Western democracy. Various things, as you also all know, have driven this, including the 1970 change to our Federal Elections Act. That was the change where we, for the first time, put party names on ballots. Before that, it said Susie Smith, comma, engineer, Steve Jones, comma, farmer. We only put the party on the ballot in the 1972 federal election, and that was the first election when the ultimate capacity to decide the local nominee was moved from the local riding association to the leader's office as part of a change to the Tax Act to give a full tax receipt for a donation. It's a package of three changes all together for one coherent purpose. But it did uh, centralize power within the party, and the vast majority of these MPs talked about the need to toe the line, to obey the leader, to obey the center of the party if you wanted to get your nomination papers signed next time. So it's a really tough question. Who is going to be the first MP to refuse those speaking points, to uh, vote contrary uh, occasionally, uh, to uh, take the risk of not climbing up the party ladder? Or who will be the first party to change its behavior and put down its weapons first? Keith Martin, who belonged to a variety of federal parties, uh, said in his interview that the tragedy of Canadian politics is that long-term value is, also, is often sacrificed on the altar of short-term gain. Which brings me to the title of our book, Tragedy in the Commons. As you probably all know, it's based on the 1968 essay in the Science magazine by Garrett Hardin, Tragedy uh, of the Commons. And he was a, a scientist and sociologist who was, as his sort of metaphor, dealing with a putative village green, a grazing meadow, sufficient for this description, say, to uh, allow 100 sheep to graze uh, effectively. And, you know, you could figure out that, hmm, if I put a second sheep, my second sheep on that village green, I get all the benefit, but only one one-hundredth of the damage. If all the sheep farmers put a second sheep on the village green, it would get nibbled down to nothing, and none of the sheep would survive. It's a classic conundrum, of course, of limited and shared resources. And hence, the, 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 um, the sort of the pun in the title of our book, Tragedy in the Commons. The topics raised by the MPs uh, in our book aren't very surprising. When we talk about What's, what they told us and what's in the book, most people you know, vaguely nod their heads. But the weirdest part for us is that they were raised with such consistency by 35 cabinet ministers and 45 backbenchers, all recent graduates, and all on the record. And even though the MPs were so critical of their own party, they were not saying, nor are we at Samara saying that we should abandon political parties. Of course not. They're absolutely vital to our healthy democracy. How else would we recruit candidates, develop policy, contest elections? But that's precisely why it matters so much. And that's precisely why we might want to pay a little bit of attention to what these 80 former MPs have told us. We asked the MPs what, we, what they thought we should do about these problems. And by and large, their answers were lame. They were scattered and weak. Uh, we, we pressed for answers, and we got no main themes, very few. When we pressed really hard, we got pushback, in fact. Uh, when we talked about 
them complaining about the nomination process using words that would you know, curl your hair, we said, well, how would Elections Canada set standardized rules for the nomination process for all parties? Would, would that help? They said, no, 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 we don't want them meddling in our party. You know, so that didn't go anywhere. So they, we didn't get a, a very long list of suggestions from them. On reflection, and in our book we talk about this, we think there are a few things that are worth consideration. You know, just for example, and there's a longer list, and, and I'm sure you all have your own list, but why not oblige federal parties who issue tax receipts, i.e. who fund their affairs with our own dollars and federal treasury, to have to adhere to the Advertising Standards Council? That's a standards council that obliges a regular advertiser to not advertise in a patently false or defamatory way. But the parties aren't obliged to follow that. Why not, as in some European countries, say if you're going to issue tax receipts, then at least a certain portion of your annual spending has to be spent on policy. It can't all be spent on advertising. Why not give serious consideration to the contents of Michael Chong's Reform Act? Why not have an obligation for posted rules about what the nomination process is going to be in a writing? All of these suggestions, and you all have your other long list, should be pretty non-controversial, but the weird thing is how much pushback they get from those in charge of our parties. And sadly, MPs claiming not to be politicians, to be outsiders, they didn't want to be there in the first place, is an attempt, we think, to distance themselves from some of these poor choices and poor behaviors made by their own parties. So, party reform, MPs getting a backbone, or perhaps we as citizens developing a bit of our own backbone and pushing our leaders to do better. And this is an election year, uh, apparently, and we, we, rumor has it. And wouldn't it be great if Springtide, Samara, others interested in this topic were able to encourage Canadians to push all the candidates to consider how their party and how they as MPs could make progress on these issues. We'll need a variety of tools to do that, and one of the things uh, that we do at Samara is our, this March we're issuing our first report card on the health of our democracy called the Samara 360, 360 as in 360 degrees. And this first report card will measure about 25 different things. Voter turnout is one of those 25. It's an important one, but it's just one. And the other 24 measurements are mostly what happens in between, in the four years in between uh, elections. Partly hard data and partly based on polling of Canadians' perceptions of their role of MPs, of political parties, uh, and so on. We're organizing it around themes like responsiveness, openness, and inclusiveness. Interestingly, some of the same things being reflected in the categories being honored here tonight. But we hope it will encourage parties, MPs, and citizens to think about how could each of those of the 25 indicators in our report be made better? What does better look like? And in our report, we'll have the results, we'll have a description of what we think is better, and sort of the exhortation that we should try to get there. Same thing that Springtide is doing here. It's called making democracy better, making politics better. And I think that all of the nominees, the MLAs, the citizens who have been honored here tonight with their nominations are examples 
living examples of what better looks like. One of our taglines at Samara is better democracy, better Canada. We share the, th the, the sentiment uh, with Springtide. We share the belief that it's possible, and we're really delighted to be here and share a room with people who have that same view. Thanks very much, and congratulations to all the nominees. That was Michael McMillan, one of the authors of the book Tragedy in the Commons. Former MPs speak out on Canada's failing democracy. He was speaking at the first Better Politics Awards that we hosted about two years ago at Springtide. You can get the book or read detailed reports from Samara's exit interviews at samaracanada.com. For the Keeners, and you know who you are, you can check out our full interview with Alison Lote, Michael's co-author, on another special episode of the podcast we released this week, where we asked her about what impact has that book had on Canadian politics now that it's been out for a few years. That's it for this special episode of the Offscript Podcast. Please remember to subscribe if you like what you're hearing. If you want to share this content, go to offscript.ca and you'll find shareable versions of all of our productions. Mm -hmm.